Hello beautiful, you are listening to episode 84 of the Africana Woman podcast. Chulu is my name, I am a writer, self-branding coach, entrepreneur and mentor. This show is the home of African women's stories. We share ideas, triumphs, challenges and lessons from our perspective as women. Our library is a step to cementing our place in history. Her story, your story is powerful. Thank you so much for tuning in. Welcome to all the new listeners and welcome back family. Please click the subscribe button just to let you know the website has a facelift. It's gorgeous, gorgeous. Go check it out on africanawoman.com. I worked very hard, but that's a story for another day. (laughs) Okay, guess how many convos are we from the 100th episode? 15 conversations. Ah, I'm so excited. For the 100th episode, we will have a live podcast recording with a live audience right here at Komishi Garden in Kabwe. If you want to be one of the 100 guests, please go to the show notes and sign up. If you want to be a sponsor for this event, I'm not going to say no. So please do get in touch. Again, the link is in the show notes. Even if you are not in Zambia, sis, I still want you to participate. You can send us a voice note on our hotline, or if you have a burning follow-up question for a previous guest, send those through as well, and we will answer them at the celebration. The 100th episode is coming up, and all roads lead to Kabwe on September 24th. I want to see you there, guys. I want to see you. Okay, we're still on announcements. Like, don't you hate it when they do that in church? (laughs) And you want to go in, but then the service was so long, and then this person is talking about, and then another announcement. And I'm like, please. Anyway, I digress. Okay, ladies, ladies, the first ever Africana Woman Visionaries Retreat is on 29 to 31st July. We are curating a very intimate experience at an exclusive property called The Castle on the shores of Lake Kariba. This retreat is about you checking in with yourself and resetting. I mean, we are going to be in a nice, like it'll be a nice place, yeah, but it's not a vacation. I'm sorry. This is a time for you to practice self-love and self-development. Or as I like to say, you get to rewrite your story and make yourself the heroine and not the victim. To find out more, click the link in the show notes or visit africanawoman.com. So I'm done with announcements. Don't key me like I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) So I think I'm going to tell you the story about this guest after you have listened to our conversation. You are in for a treat. This is my favorite episode of all the 84 episodes on the Africana Woman podcast. That's like a huge thing to declare. It's my favorite. I'll tell you why at the end. So, with no further delay, enjoy the conversation. 
Marianne Lou Martin is a former Parisian lawyer who is passionate about architecture and interiors. She is a self-taught architect and interior designer. Marianne owns and designs award-winning hospitality concepts in Marrakesh. Since 1989, she won the 2000 Harpers and Queens Award of Best Private Estate to Rent in the World. She is the author of Inside Marrakesh, Enchanting Homes and Gardens, published by Rizzoli NY, which went in record times into second print. Marianne believes that hospitality is a tool to change the economy and opportunities of sectors of the population in Africa who master crafts but not college education. I am so excited to have Marianne on the Africana Woman podcast. Hi! Hello, hello, Chulu. I'm honored and happy and full of gratitude to have been invited. Oh, okay. So my first question is always, could you tell us about your favorite childhood memory? Well, there's many, there are many, but I would say, ha, huh, that probably it was with my mother when, uh, I discovered, you know, children always want to, you know, disrupt the order and the instructions. I hope I'm not going to be too long on that one. But we lived in Moscow under very, very hard communist rules. Because even though, you know, my parents were both lawyers, at some point for 10 years, my father was the ambassador of Senegal. So we lived in Moscow, in London, etc. And so... In Moscow, you know, Russian people were not allowed to listen to foreign music. Diplomats could listen to what they wanted. But, you know, Russians could listen to classical music, to local Russian music, and to Cuban music, because Cuba was communist. So something which had an incredible impact on opening my eyes to the reality and the impact of culture was that I was taking piano lessons and my mother would take me twice a week to my piano teacher, who was this very uh, beautiful Russian woman. And every time we would arrive, salsa music was blasting in the whole neighborhood. And this would put my mother and her into giggles all the time. So I, one day I asked my mother, but what is so funny about this? And she told me, you see, Russian people can only listen to Cuban music. But she's listening to music from Puerto Rico, which is United States, and the communist people can see the difference. And so this, there I started thinking, oh my God, this is, you know, even though I was a child, but because my mother took me everywhere and she would tell me every morning when we were living in Moscow, open your eyes and open your ears and remember everything because this is an amazing experience. This, I think I was eight years old, probably. And this opened a whole new world of looking at things, you know, what is in the surface and what is beneath it. And I, when I think about a childhood memory, I think this is the thing which made me think the most. That's so interesting. I like your mom and your teacher's humor. <laughs> around yes, that. yes, yes, yes. 
So I'm just going to jump right into it. I saw um, a quote that you said uh, once in an um, interview, which said, uh, I'll just read it out. It says, um, being different was a way for me to succeed. I started to look at my difference as wealth, as people of color or varied cultural traditions are an incredible wealth. I decided that after understanding the Western world's idea of knowledge, I needed to bring my own rich identity and ways of knowing on top of that. And it made me stronger. I really, really love this statement, but I wanted to hear more from you. What was it that separated Western world's idea of knowledge from the another type of knowledge that is, you know, from the continent and I guess traditional? Well, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm a self-taught architect. And since I was a child, I was fascinated about architecture. I think that, you know, the Western world, and I could see this because I did two years of architecture studies at the Ecole Nationale des Beaux-Arts in Paris before going to law school. And you have an approach which is very westernized of education in the white world. You know, they don't know other things. And it's not, it's a state of fact. It's not, I'm not criticizing anything. The facts are that when you grow up in France or in England or somewhere else, and um, the education is white-centric. It's, it's about the Western culture, the Western values. And what I found really interesting, for example, in the field of architecture, was that I discovered, because since I was very young, I was reading a lot about vernacular architecture, probably because I never really, I never lived in Africa. So I had this fascination about cultural heritage, you know? Mm, and so when I started being very interested in architecture, I could see the Western world of architecture, but I could feel that the earth architecture, traditional earth architecture, was as smart as interesting than an 18th century house in Europe. The 18th century house in Europe was responding to the demands of the culture of that time, and a round adobe structure in some part of Africa where they, they master the way to, to keep the water and to, um, you know, have drafts and not be too hot, too hot because the earth, um, the, the walls are in earth and things like that. For me, corresponding to just as elaborative and smart and well thought process to build a house. So I think that when I, when I talk about the richness of culture, I think that there are many of us now who have grown up in a country which is not, does not correspond to their genetic ancestry, I would say, not even going very far, but does not correspond to where your, their parents were born. And sometimes father and mother are born in different places like mine. And sometimes Grandparents are also born in different places, also like mine. So what I think is very important is to see this diversity as a wealth. It's a wealth because we can understand both worlds. We can excel in the Western system of education, and we can mix it with the richness 
of centuries of our own culture. So speaking about grandparents, could you tell us your story around your grand, your grandmother's grandfather? Ah. And I really love that story. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a very inspiring story because, um, so on my mother's side, they were coming from West Indies, Caribbeans, you know, and um, a part which is still part of France, which is called Guadeloupe, and Guadeloupe and Martinique are still, it's just like, it, well, it's not the same climate, the same history, but it's just like if it was part of France, right? And so as most of Europe, it had slavery for a long time. The grandfather of my grandmother was born enslaved on a big farm in Guadeloupe. And when he was 16, he was freed. And he was a very smart man because all of the people who were freed from slavery were kind of traumatized with the idea of continue to work the earth and land and farm. And so people went on to cities, but they had no education and they had no training. So they perpetuated this system of poverty. And my ancestor was very, was really in a very smart way, said, I'm not going anywhere because I know how to farm and I'm a good farmer. So he stayed on the property where he was then having a salary because slavery was finished. And he went up all the degrees and ended up being the the manager of the, the estate. And he was saving every penny. And when the owner of the property, who was his boss and not his owner anymore, decided to move back to France and decided to sell his property, he told him, I will recommend you to the next owner. And my ancestor told, asked him how much he wanted for the estate. And he went to take his wood box, like, you know, people then, they wouldn't have money in the bank. They would have wood boxes with gold coins in it. He went to take his wood box and, And I love the image of this, that he sat at a table with this white man. And when he was born, he was owned, in quote, by this white man. They just sat at the same table as an employee and his manager. And he counted each penny and he arrived to the value of the land. So he bought the land on which he was born enslaved. And then the, the man left and he was, he owned it. And he moved to the big house, which was the former, you know, white people's house. And he was obsessed with the idea of learning how to read and write, which was not possible before because, you know, enslaved people were not going to school. And he um, was wondering how he could, he could learn how to read and write. And the economic impact of the abolition of slavery was that the rich white people stayed rich and the middle class poor white people became really poor because they didn't have free labor anymore. So there was this white guy knocking at, his, at the gates of the estate every day, begging for food. And so he told him one day, 
you have something I need and I have something you need. So move in here. I'll give you room and board and you will teach me how to read and write. And the irony of the story is that the white guy moved to the former slave quarters. And my ancestor was living in the big house. It was his estate. So this man taught him how to read and write. And they had one book, Omeros, Iliad, and Odyssey. And so, you know, the book about all the, the Greek heroes. And so his firstborn, who is the father of my grandmother, was called Achilles as one of the heroes of the book. So in one generation, Achilles went on to become a lawyer and to be elected at the French Congress. So he was seating at the front in Paris at the gorgeous building of Assemblée Nationale. And uh, he was writing the laws of France and he was the only black congressman born from a freed slave. I think there were about 600 congressmen. At some point there were three black men but he was the only one born from a, a freed slave. The life of Achilles and of his children, he had my grandmother and then four boys, is, is a novel in itself. And it, we don't have the time to go through here, through it here. But you asked me the story of my ancestor. And, and in one, in, I will just add something. He was a congressman during the First World War. And during the First World War, as you know, America, United States of America sent troops to save um, Europe, just like they did during the Second World War. The president, I believe it was Wilson then, the um, president of the United States, it was, you know, Jim Crow and a lot of racism going on in the U.S., which I will not talk about because it continues in certain way, certainly. We could see that with the last shooting. The American president was putting pressure on the French government because he was going to send troops, which were white and black. And he didn't want the black soldiers to take the habit of being able to go and sit in a cafe, to be served in a restaurant, and to have like the freedom that black people had in France. So he was putting pressure on the French government to create segregated soldiers' barracks. And my ancestor was leading the opposition to that, and he won. And we have, we're very lucky because we have tons of archives and press clippings and access to the uh, Libra Library of Congress and everything, talking about everything he did, you know. So I think that this is an interesting point of closeness, with our brothers and sisters in America because you had this man who was born of a freed slave, who was sitting in Congress and who opposed. I mean, he was the congressman of Guadeloupe and he was, you know, he was not, a, a lot of congressmen comes from very wealthy families sometimes and he was not, he was a lawyer and, and he opposed to the most powerful man in the US, in the world, which was a United States uh, president. And he succeeded. So I think this is something that I'm ex also extremely proud of. Wow, you've got a very rich story with your ancestors going through to the work that you are doing even now. So I know that you are passionate about, you know, female entrepreneurship and, you know, just having women come 
forward and be entrepreneurs and leaders. So I wanted to ask what, I guess, what inspires you to be an entrepreneur and own a business? I think that people have to follow their, their nature. I could have been uh, born with talent for science, which I have absolutely none, you know? And my dream could have been to become a medical doctor, but I would be probably the worst of them all. I could not even pass the first week of the first year of studies. So I think that people have to find what they love because when they find what they love, hurdles don't feel the same. You know, you always, you always have hurdles in life. But if you're doing what you love, it's not the same, you know? So you ask me what inspires me. I really don't know. It's just being myself. I'm just being myself and doing what I love doing, which is being creative. Since I was a child, I would arrive in a space and imagine what I could do with it. So it's something, you know, I didn't learn how to do. It's just the way I am, you know? I remember when we were looking for an, uh, an apartment to rent in Paris, because I'm from Paris. Um, my husband, we would walk in a space and my husband would say, okay, this is horrible. I said, wait a minute. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then he said, okay, you, you see things that I don't see. So I understand, you know. So it's just, that's just the way I am. Honestly, I have no, uh, how do you say, it's not something I worked on. It's very natural, you know. Where I would be very, I would have a lot of merits if I had tried to be good in math, for example. So you are living in Marrakesh, Morocco. And like you said, you are a Parisian lawyer. Did you practice? I practiced in Paris. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I, I quit the bar. I quit the bar 30 years ago. Okay. And then how did you find yourself in Morocco? I found myself in Morocco because, as I told you, I wanted to be an architect and I, I couldn't do, uh, I couldn't study architecture because the French system is so rigid that you have to fill in, fill in the mold, which is a, really a big, a big problem. I'll just give you a tiny example. Our son, uh, when he, he started in the French system and when he was like nine, the uh, teacher called my husband and I saying, well, we know that everyone goes to university in your family, but get ready because he will not be able to do studies, you know, da, 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 da. And we got out of this meeting laughing, my husband and I. And my son went on to have brilliant A-levels, go to McGill, go to do a McGill undergrad, did his master's at SOAS, and now he's doing a PhD at UC Berkeley. And, you know, and he's, and he's very successful in everything he does. So I was in this French system, which is so rigid. I wanted to be an architect since I was a kid, and I can't get into third year because I'm not, I can't have a minor degree in chemistry and physics. You imagine how stupid it is when you think that architects work with engineers and they don't need to do math, physics, and chemistry when they are architects. You are asking me how I'm in Morocco. I'm in Morocco because my parents, who were, my mother was West Indian and my father is from Senegal and they were living in Paris. And at some point, they wanted to have a holiday house, which wouldn't be as far as their countries of origin. And Marrakesh is three hours flight from Paris. And I told them, look, if you're serious about this project, I was a lawyer then, 
as you know, I'm passionate about architecture and I'd like to be in charge from A to Z. So I came to look for land in 85, fell in love with Morocco and did a project for them. So three weeks a, a month, I was a lawyer in Paris. One week a month, I was a, a self-taught architect, interior designer, contractor in America. To my immense, immense uh, surprise, the property I designed for them went, I, I turned it into a business and then it went on to want to win all these awards and also have the most incredible clientele, you know? Our clientele was Brad Pitt and uh, uh, all the European royals and Mick Jagger and David Bowie and Giorgio Armani and people, especially people like, you know, Giorgio Armani or the Missoni family or Donna Karen. These people, their business is about taste and style, you know? The fact that they loved it and would come back and send their friends was just like having an A star at an exam, you know? So this is how I started coming to Morocco. But I had one thing led to another. And while I was building this, I had friends who would come to visit me from Europe and they were telling me, oh, it's going to be so nice. And, you know, it's so boring to go to hotels. Why don't you turn this place into something special with a great service? And then I started thinking about it and, and I produced this, and the thing, I mean, it went beyond my wildest dreams. I had no idea. So people could, you know, nowadays, you know, for example, I was having lunch today with people who asked me, so did you have a business plan? Did you have, did you do a marketing study? I said, based on what? I had no idea. I just did something which I knew I would like. And I was lucky to have things I would like being liked by other people. But there was no professional approach at all. Between 80, we, I opened my parents' place in 89, and between 89 and 96, I was coming off into Morocco, but I was living in Paris. I had, put, I had trained a very good team in Marrakesh, taking care of the guests, and I would market it from my little fax in Paris because it was fax time. So during the day, I was a lawyer and I would come home and there would be miles of faxes asking to go to that place. To give you a, a, an example, Tom Cruise had to try four times before I could find space. And his secretary was calling me exasperated, thinking, telling me, do you know who he is? And I would say, yes, so what? Do you know who we have? And then I would give a list of people 10 times more important who had their space and dates booked in the house. And I said, I'm not going to ask people to change their dates because he wants to come. This is how it happened. And then in 95, so in the meantime, I get married. We have two children. We're living in Paris. In 95, we had horrendous strikes in Paris. And my husband, who's American and who was living in Paris and working out of Paris, but not so crazy about Paris. And I, we decided to move to Morocco in 96 and give it a try. And we've been here since July 96. So in 2000, I bought the land where I built my hotel. And one of the connections, one of the reasons I'm so full of gratitude and admiration for my West Indian part of the family is that it's through inheritance from my West Indian 
grand, grandmother that I was able to buy my land in Morocco. So uh, I have a very strong connection to that because this is really the origin of everything. You know, in the bio, you had talked about, you know, hospitality being a tool to change the economy, especially for sectors um, in the African population who are, you know, master craftsmen. And, yes. and women. And yes, craftsmen and women. Yes, of course. And I wonder, it's, I've never been to Morocco, but I imagine that there are more craftsmen there that, you know, are, have, are probably keeping the crafts alive from, I don't know if it's centuries old, but when I compare that to Southern Africa or just Zambia where I am, you know, they're not, it's really dying. Um, it's a dying art of, preserving the way that things were made, different crafts that they are. And I, ju I just wanted to know more about what, what is the, the culture around, you know, craftsmen and women in Morocco? So there's some principles which can be adapted to the rest of the continent. And there are things which are different. So in Morocco, we have a, a very old architecture, because, you know, Andalusia in Spain is entirely Moroccan. For seven centuries, people from Morocco were occupying southern Spain. And Seville, Granada, Cordoba, all, all of this is 100% Moorish, you know? So after seven centuries, the, the Queen Isabel the Catholic, they sent back the Islamic people who had been living in Spain. So you had Catholic and Muslims. They sent back the Muslims to the African continent. And at the same time, Christopher Columbus went on to America. I will not say discover America because there, were, there was a lot of population there, but he discovered it he, himself, okay? So, um, so, and he brought with him, in fact, an influence, which is in West Indies, in, in Latin America, and in some parts of the U.S., which is a Moorish influence, architectures with arches and courtyards. So in Morocco, we have incredible craftsmanship. People do seal, they, they work the wood, they work the plaster, they work something called zelige, which is azulejos in Spanish, which is uh, uh, tiles, and which we don't have in the rest of Africa. But when I say um, that it's a tool for development, the issue is that, you know, hospitality has been seen and is often seen as an investment by people who happen to have money, but they could invest in hospitality, like they could create a factory for, I don't know, for tiles, for tires or cars. So it's not seen at, it, there's no emotion, uh, cultural emotional link there. So they will build, considering cost, the most, um, the less expensive thing, trying to make everything standardized and they will never connect to the local culture because this is not their purpose. And this is something which has been like a real plague for the tourism industry is that you might be in a place you don't really know where you are because everything looks the same. And it has been a plague in, on our continent because the people who had the money to invest in tourism we're doing it without any intention or desire to 
do anything than make money. The purpose was never to help the local culture strive. On top of that, the especially in Black Africa compared to Northern Africa, we have been, you know, in a way, the victim of this colonial idea that there's no culture in Africa, that there's wild spaces, beaches, but there's no culture uh, in their in their sense of culture, which of course I absolutely don't agree with. So you would have people who would develop, you know, lodges to see wildlife. You would have people who would build hotels on coast or by lake also because of the landscape. But where is, I would love to know when things are changing little by little, but where do you have a sense that the country needs to be developed and a lot of people haven't gone to school? What is the opportunity for a population, for a family to strive, to send their kids to school or to be able to pay doctor bills when there are no job opportunities? And there are no job opportunities because only the Western type of education is being understood as the possibility. When in all African countries, people have gold in their hands because either they know how to properly manage the land, or they know some crafts, or they can learn some crafts. And so there's something which has always bothered me everywhere I have been traveling, is that I don't see sustainable opportunities for the local people in a way which is empowering their traditional knowledge. It just doesn't exist. So, of course, you have people who are going to have jobs because there's some hotels being built. Okay, but if they don't, what happens if they have a job for three, three years and then they have an issue with the management and then they're laid off? What have they learned? What have they learned allowing them to be independent? And what I'm interested in is working within the local knowledge and the traditional knowledge and see how it can be adapted to the Western, uh, Western market is, you know, the market is Western, whether even if, even if I have uh, African clients, which is unfortunately not often the case, and I will tell you something about that, the, 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 the market is formatted on Western taste, okay? So, for example, in terms of craftsmanship, the traditional culture in Morocco could be doing, I will tell you an example, a textile and embroideries, which are going to be too colorful for the Western taste. So they won't sell it. But if I suggest to use the same craftsmanship and impeccable know-how, but to do something only with two colors, then it sells like hotcakes. So I think that the, the, the duty of investors is to see how they can provide opportunities for local people, empowering their traditional know-how and creating a link with the expectation of the market, which is going to be the final consumer. And this is the process. I'm really not here to be selling room nights. I need to sell room nights so, so my business is successful. But this is the, the thing which really motivates me, 
is to put together models that I will be very happy to see copied. So the situation and this of local people on the continent who didn't have the opportunity to go to school can change. I hope I wasn't too long because I'm very passionate about the subject. No. What did you want to say about African clients? Well, that's something really different, you know, between, you know, are the African-Americans and the African market. I started having, you know, for, for years, I had no, my clients never looked like me. I had, you know, tons of pages in Architectural Digest, in Condé Nast Traveler, in Vogue with my other property, but it, the, the, my market was not, was not at all looking like me. And then I started having stories in Essence, in Black Enterprise, in Ebony, and then suddenly I started having a lot of African-Americans. What I think is fantastic about African-Americans is that they support Black business. I, I, and every day, every day I have African-Americans, if they can't, um, um, how do you call this? If they can't afford to stay in the hotel and they're in a cheaper place in the city, they will come for lunch. They will come for a cooking class. They will come for a birthday celebration. And they tell me, we're not going to leave this place without supporting a sister, you know? Last year, there were these African people based in Europe who wanted to do a birthday party here. We're going to be about 20 people. We do magnificent birthday parties for, you know, people who could choose to anywhere in the world that they, they have chosen to come here. Can you imagine that the birthday boy and his friend who was organizing the party had to convince the other guests who were all African that they should come here? Because their first reaction was, oh, it belongs, are you sure it's good? It belongs to an African person. Oh, how can we be sure it's going to be good? When, I mean, my clientele speaks for itself, you know? I have, you know, an actress like Naomi Watts. It's at my place that she did her 50s. Hugh Jackman, who's like the, one of the most famous actors in the world, has come to our place so many times. And I could name it, you know? And then you had people looking like me, born on the African continent who would not even trust going to my hotel. Can you imagine this? And I think this is, a, this is very frequently the, the, the case because when I discovered that, fortunately they came and they all left blown away and all uh, have talked about it in a very, very more than positive way. But their first, their first reaction was, oh, are you sure it's good? Oh, it seems really expensive for something owned by an African woman. Can you imagine this? Uh, that is, it's unfortunate. I mean, I mean, you know, I've had these types of conversations where one, people will always be trying to negotiate you down because you're African. But then when they go into that Western store, no one is negotiating. You're just going and buying, you know. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. But yes. it's, you know, I don't know why I, I don't know why we just don't trust each other, you know, and just want to support each other. Because even if, let's say you were just starting out, when they do support you, then you get to the level that whatever of course, it is, expected, of course, you know? Of course. And I didn't need them to start. Yeah. And I didn't need any of them to, to get the clientele I have. So, you know, instead of 
doing some research and thinking, oh my God, if he, she has this kind of clientele, it's going to, it must be good and I'm going to appreciate it. They started being negative, you know? And I'm sure, you know, because I keep on bumping into Africans in the city and they'd rather go to a place, excuse me, for no, I, I shouldn't give a name, but they'd rather go to a place which belongs to this uh, French chain and which has nothing to do with more an experience in Marrakech. It's great for a corporate ret- uh, meeting or something, but it has nothing to do with a place like Marrakech. So th- they'd rather go there than, c- than come support me. Mm. That's life. Yeah, yeah. So how would you describe your, your leadership style? Well... My kids would say it's only chaotic. (laughs) I don't know. I think that, you know, I think that there's one thing. I can be, I can be really tough because I'm very demanding, but I'm very demanding on myself. And I know that the people have been working with me in Morocco. They tell me very, you know, in, in, in a respectful way, you can get out, you can get on with it because you work more than we do, you know? And so I don't, I never count my hours. And they always say that when you like what you do, you never go to work. I, I'm so demanding with myself that it forces the other people to tolerate my expen- ex- uh, expectations. And if they don't, of course, they don't stay, but it's fine. But I'm, I'm very happy because we have a lot of... People have been with us for 15 years, 16 years, 18 years. You know, uh, there's someone who passed now. She was with us since I started building my parents' house. I hired her in 87. That's a long time. Yeah. So I know your, your children have got, you know, multiple interests. And I was just wondering around your succession plan for the hotels and your businesses especially as, you know, a lot of it comes from your creativity and the things that you're making. How are you envisioning that this is going to live on for many generations? Well, I think my my daughter is very much getting very, very, very much involved and she's very creative too. So it's good, you know, and my my son who will not be involved in the hotel because he's probably going to to stay in the very brilliant academic world where he is striving, came back home. When was that about? About four years ago. Uh, He wanted to spend some time in Morocco to learn Arabic. And he told me, oh, I'd like to see a little bit about what's going on in this business. And I told him, look at everything. And after... 10 days, he told me, I I analyzed everything. And I have to tell you, you might be a brilliant creative, but what a really lousy manager you are. And, and, and I said, Oh, please help. You know, I hate to do all these things. I just want to create. But once I have created a place, I need to turn it into a business. So, but the business management daily thing is not something I'm, I'm too interested in. And so he, he, he analyzed everything. He's very good at analyzing human resources. And he told me, you see, this one has to move jobs, change jobs, because his position is toxic where it is, and it's preventing other people to give their best to the job. So either he has to be laid off or he has to be moved to another position. 
And he said, this one has to be, ha to have a promotion. And, and he reorganized everything and he put everything on a very good computer system. And after he did all that, he said, okay, I did my family duty. Bye-bye. And so he, he brought what he could and he brought it brilliantly. Now, our daughter is very creative and we are, we are developing more and more cultural retreats here because, you know, we are very interested in matters of diversity, of course. And we believe that a hotel, well, the fact is that a hotel has worked as a platform to create bonding experiences to, within people who meet here. But it has de facto acted like this without us necessarily, uh, how do you say, planning it. So we started doing some cultural events, always around the idea of celebrating creativity, whether it's through writing, film, or even entrepreneurship. And now we're, and we, we did a fantastic event before COVID, and now we're getting back to it. And um, my daughter is very good at cultural event, at planning cultural and creative things. And I think she will also be good at running the place. And she enjoys it. And it doesn't prevent her from writing and uh, working on documentaries and things that she likes to do. So when we talk about succession, I do hope that it's going to be her place. That's lovely. All right. As we are winding down, I wonder, how do you define home? Well, I guess, you know, for a lot of people in the same position as me who have, you know, they grow, we grew up somewhere, but we genetically belong to another place and then we moved to another place as an adult. For me, home is definitely Morocco because this is where I built my business. Uh, even though when I'm in Paris, I'm home because it's my hometown and I'm French. But I think it is where you grow your own roots. And it's probably the case of everybody of the new generation, even though I'm not so young. But the generation of, I would say, world nomads that we're part of, it's where we grow our roots. I have grown my roots in Morocco. I think that it's easier to choose a different country You know, I could not, I could not have spent so much time in Senegal, which I love, where my grandparents on my father's side are from. I could never have spent so much time in West Indies, where my mother's family is from, because already my grandparents were not there. But it's easier for me to choose another place than one of these two and to create my own country. So I don't consider myself Moroccan. I don't speak Arabic, but emotionally it is home great the last thing it's not morocco it's marrakesh i don't feel home in other countries <laughs> at other cities of morocco oh it's okay. marrakesh yeah all right got it oh it's been a fantastic conversation Marianne. please tell us where tell the audience where can they find you how do they find out more about you and if they want to support you how do they do that So they can go on our Instagram, which I'm going to spell because people otherwise wouldn't find it. It's J like James, N-A-N-E, 
Jnan, T-A-M-S-N-A. So if you follow Jnan Tamsna, J-N-A-N-E-T-A-M-S-N-A, is the name of our hotel. And you can send a private message and you'll be answered. That's very true. <laughs> okay, so thank you so much. I've enjoyed this conversation and learned so much. So fascinating. Thank you, Chulu. I do hope that you'll come to visit us one day. I hope so too, because one of my passions is really about getting more Africans to do uh, tourism like within the continent. One of the plans for the community, for the Africana woman community, is that uh, we'll be doing destination retreats. And I can already see us in Marrakesh. <laughs> so that's great. <laughs> this would be wonderful. I do hope you do this. And I do hope that we'll be able to, to be part of that. Mm -hmm. Me too. When I tell you I cried editing this episode, yes, I cry a lot, but it's okay. <laughs> Let me tell you how I found Marianne. One of these days, I was going through an email newsletter from a women's entrepreneurship organization. And I remember scrolling down and then stopping at the image of a strikingly beautiful woman with dazzling white hair. You guys know that, you know, I wish I was Storm <laughs> from X-Men. And there was, but there was just something that was captivating about her. So I read the article and I was even more fascinated. I took a screenshot of her and I said to myself that I want to interview this lady on the podcast. This woman's image has been sitting on my desktop for months. Every day I look at her and I say to myself, one day. I honestly don't even remember what made me reach out finally. And let me tell you, within minutes, she had responded and set up a recording day. I was like, wow, wow. I'll come back to this. Now, for me, Marianne is the embodiment of why I do Africana Woman. I remember having a conversation and I asked people just in general and say, Okay, can you give me examples of African women who are, you know, role models? And when I tell you people struggled, and then now they started mentioning, you know, icons in um, African-American icons, and I'm like, they're not African. Africana woman for me is the place where I can really just show the world that, yes, African women are doing amazing, phenomenal, great things. And they are plenty of role models. I never, ever want to hear someone say that there are no African female role models. Go back through 84 episodes and you'll find them. When you hear how her grandmother left her an inheritance to be able to create such a divine business and hotel, this is a perfect example 
of what building generational wealth can do. As you know, generational wealth building is a pillar of Africana woman. It's about being conscious that the decisions you make today create the future for your children's children. Marianne talked about how the work that she does is just who she is. And this stands for another Africana woman pillar called authenticity. Giving yourself permission to walk in your true nature. The other pillars of impact and transformation You can hear it in the way that she talks about creating a sustainable model for artisans. And that's her legacy. And finally, because Marianne knows her roots, therefore she has grown her purpose so magnificently. Be it in knowing who her ancestors are, and the impact they made on this world, to knowing the architectural history of the continent and acknowledging the value of it, her roots center the way that she moves in this world. You may be listening right now and you know that you're not in the right profession. You know that you're not in the right field of work. You know exactly what and where you are supposed to be, but you're too scared to bet on yourself. Look at Marianne. The French system told her she could not be an architect, but it is who she is at the core. When she did it anyway, She said she could not have imagined her life now. She couldn't have planned it. I'm just saying, show up in this world as your authentic self. Don't worry about the how. It will all fall in place. Now, a little trivia. (laughs) I actually wanted to be an architect and in my college days, I studied architectural studies and I actually thought I would be an architectural historian traveling the African continent to showcase to the world the splendor and rich knowledge of our architecture. Because I was frustrated with the way African architecture was deemed primitive And, you know, I actually did a a project and uh, I was pretty much failed. (laughs) Anyway, I never became an architect. And I have always considered that as one of the great failures of my life. But meeting Marianne showed me that it's not too late. I don't need Western education to tell me who I am at my core. I am who I say I am. And I just want to go back to what I was saying about having Marianne's image on my desktop 
for months and months and months. I think that many times, you, you know, we, we, we think that doing things like vision boards and, you know, things like that are kind of like a waste of time and they, they don't really work, you know, but I believe, I believe that that day that I decided to reach out to her, it was a day that was aligned, that it was meant to happen because I had put that intention out in the world for it to happen. What are the odds of one actually just going through that email? Because most times I don't go through those emails. You know, what are the odds that I could go through the email, find her, and then have such a a deeply impacting conversation with her? And I know so many of you have got dreams and you're just holding on to them. You're, you're waiting for that right moment, the right moment that you have enough money, you have enough resources, you have enough enough equipment or whatever it is to actually start. But let me tell you, I do this podcast with the bare minimum, bare, bare, bare minimum of equipment. Week after week, I bring these conversations to you that have inspired so many. I mean, the messages that I get where someone says, oh my God, I loved that episode. It was so inspiring. It made me think differently. It inspired me to to start this, to do this. But imagine if I had sat and said, well, I don't have a microphone, so I can't do a podcast. I don't have that equipment or that software, so I can't do a podcast. I did it anyway. I do it anyway. I don't have any of those things. I just have my phone and a computer. (laughs) So whatever it is that you have in your heart to start, I just want you to know that you have everything that you need right now to get it started. I'll say it again. You have everything that you need right now to start whatever your dream is. Bet on yourself. You're a good bet. Okay. All right. So at Africana Woman, we give our guests roses in the now. (laughs) Please find Marianne on Instagram at Janani Tamsna. It is, let me tell you that, that, that her hotel is gorgeous. It is divine. Like, I cannot wait to go there. And you need to send me a message if you want to go to Marrakesh and visit this hotel. And I'm telling you, uh, this is me putting it out in the world because I'll come and post a picture that, hey, I'm here. (laughs) So tell her you heard on the Africana Woman podcast. In fact, take a screenshot of this episode and tag 
both of us. We want to keep the conversation going. I just want to remind you. <laughs> I know I said that I was done with the announcements, but I'm back with another one. <laughs> okay. So, you know, when I, I, I guess I'm saying it again, you know, when I was starting Africana Woman podcast, I, I was just clueless. No equipment, no systems, no training in editing. And it was just the wild, wild west out there. But two years down the line, I'm so proud of the podcast and how far that it has come. Now, the mission of Africana Woman is that we want to tell more African women's stories. And that's why we are helping you start and maintain your podcast. So if you have a burning idea and you're interested in launching a podcast and you don't know where to start, please do contact us at AfricanaWoman at gmail.com. One more thing, something possessed me, I don't know what, but I've actually started a community for Zambian podcasters. Now, I don't know, I don't think I actually, I don't know, maybe I do talk about it. But anyway, I, I think most of you know is that I'm a, I'm from Zambia and uh, obviously a Zambian podcaster, but I think because this is such a global uh, podcast, you know, it sometimes gets gets lost in translation, plus my accent and all of that stuff. But anyway, I decided to start a community for Zambian podcasters. And if you are interested in joining that community, please let me know and would love to have you there. The more, the merrier. Okay. Okay. I am done. I am done with announcements. <laughs> so my playground is Instagram. Find me at Chulubai Design. Tag me. Tell your friends about the Africana Woman podcast. And please leave a review, especially on Apple Podcast. Okay? So your iTunes there. That's where you're supposed to leave it. Why? Because it helps us spread the word about this show to more African sisters out there. So I'll talk to you soon. This has been a production of Africana Woman Media. Mm-hmm.